Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast with me, Dr. James Bergen. Poison dart frogs are one of those groups that really capture the imagination. The colours, the poison, the exoticness, the cuteness. For a frog, they get a pretty good press. But how did their spectacular colours evolve? Well, today we're going to delve into this question for one particularly colour-diverse species. As we discussed the recent Heredity paper, the evolution of polymorphism in the warning coloration of the Amazonian poison frog, Adelphobates galactinotis. And it's a bit of a long one, so let's get straight into it. Welcome both to the Heredity Podcast. Can you just introduce yourselves? Well, I'll uh, I'll commence. So I'm Adam Stowe. I'm at Macquarie University in Sydney, Australia, and I've got research interests in understanding how animals move across uh, landscapes and what the implications of different levels of connectivity might be to genetic variation and evolutionary processes. Uh, my name is Diana Rojas. I'm from Colombia, but actually I live in Brazil. I'm a biologist and I began to study frogs and specifically ecology of frogs and urines. And since my master, and I still do it. I am actually work at a university here called Fametro. Yeah, perfect. And you kind of mentioned there that you were working on frogs, and that's what this paper is on. But sort of more broadly, this paper is looking at aposematic coloration, which sounds very fancy. So maybe you could just explain what you mean by this. Uh, would you like me to, Gianna? Yes, I think. Uh, aposematic coloration is kind of like an advertisement. It's almost a form of branding, if you like, where a very bright color advertises to a potential predator that the individual is toxic or poisonous. And I guess the idea is that to be an effective brand or an effective advertisement, one would expect that the color is consistent in order to be effective uh, so that predators can recognize that warning. So one of the interesting things that you often see in poison arrow frogs is that there is color variation. And and so this source of variation is unexpected and has provided a lot of interest in order to better understand the evolutionary processes that underpin this color variation. No, perfect. And I mean, you were mentioning the frogs there a bit as well. And I guess a lot of people probably know what poison frogs look like. But I wonder if you could just explain a bit about the group of frogs that you were studying in particular and what it is that they look like. Well, the frogs that we studied are very interesting, amazing and cute frogs. So Adelphobaris galactonorus is an aposematic poison frog that is endemic to the eastern Brazilian Amazon. And these frogs are larger than other poison frogs of the same family, measuring between 3 to 5 centimeters. And as an aposematic species, Adelphobaris galactonorus also exhibits a great dorsal color variation across its geographical distribution and the dorsal coloration of these bright frogs could vary from a very light blue to red coloration. So sometimes the blue light coloration looks almost like white coloration, but you can also find frogs that are yellow, orange, brown and also green. Another thing that is interesting for this species is that when you find a frog of one color, all the other frogs at these populations will be the same color. I might add a bit in there as well, if that's okay, James. Uh, I was 
Very fortunate to be introduced to this frog, Delphibardi's Galactonotus by Gianna and one of Gianna's PhD supervisors, Albertina Lima. And they're an absolutely spectacular frog. They're quite large for a, a poison frog and they have these spectacular colours on their dorsal surface. And one of the striking things about this species is that the bright colours, exactly as Gianna mentioned, are unique to a a location. So if you look at a particular population at a particular spot, they all have the same dorsal coloration. But you can get populations that are in very close proximity to each other with different colors. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. And I suppose the other kind of interesting thing is you're talking about distances in the order of a few kilometers in, in some cases. And when you think of the function of the, the colour as a aposematic signal, as an advertisement, one of the primary predators for these poison frogs, the Adelphibardis galactonotus, are, uh, are birds. And they're highly mobile and one would expect that, you know, an individual bird is likely to fly the sorts of distances that might encompass a few different colour types. Um, so what was it that you were actually looking to find out in the study? First of all, one of the things that we wanted to do, and Gianna sort of started with this, was to measure the the dorsal coloration and get a sense of how many different colors are out there and where are they located. And then once that had been established, again, Gianna led this where she wanted to model different visual systems of different predators and also the frogs themselves in order to understand whether those different colours were distinguishable to the predators and distinguishable to the frogs themselves. So in other words, do the different colours actually matter? Then we wanted to know something about the rate at which these different colours evolved and estimate during what sort of time period historically these colours diversified in the Amazon basin. And then we wanted to understand what landscape features might be influencing levels of connectivity between different populations. Uh, So they were the key areas of investigation. Uh, And so we wanted to know whether the distribution of present-day colour is a consequence of individuals of different colours dispersing across the landscape or whether on each occasion you get a population with a different dorsal colour that reflects a colour transition, a a new mutation that gave rise to a new colour. Oh, fantastic. I mean, they all sound like really interesting questions. And Gianna, it sounds as though you were sort of leading a lot of this. So maybe you could tell us a bit about how you went about trying to answer these questions. Like, did it involve a lot of time in the field? We had field work that was amazing. Amazon is really amazing. So one of the interesting things that we used to decide the points that we were to visit was where the blue color was found. Uh, we traveled to the Paris state in Brazil. That is the uh, principal distribution of Galactonotus, maybe. And well, we collect uh, a standard number of frogs at each locality of each color. And we try to cover almost the geographic distribution known for Galactonotus. Um, was something like two years 
during the rainy season to collect our samples. But we also use another sample that were previously collected that were available in, in collections. We try also to measure all the, the live individuals that we collect to try to see the colors. So we measure that with a, a spectrophotometer. And we try to do during the field, but sometimes we have to measure in the laboratory at Manaus. I have used a spectrophotometer myself. They are not the easiest things to get into the field. <laughs> no, the, the, the fieldwork was amazing. It's a very good experience. I love fieldwork, but you, you have to... It, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. But you enjoy that. So, I mean, you kind of went out there. It sounds as though you spent an incredible amount of time collecting these samples. And I guess, what was it that you sort of did with all this data once you collected it? I think that Adam can explain very what we exactly do with the genetic part. Okay. <laughs> Right. So um, as as Gianna mentioned, she amassed a, a wonderful uh, data set of colour and also um, very small tissue samples that she collected from the field. And I might, might also add that I was very fortunate to enjoy the field work with Gianna and Albertina Lima, and it was an absolutely amazing experience. So we're talking about a very remote part of the world and we traveled by boats to get up into these very remote areas and then would walk on a you know daily basis quite often you know 15 kilometers or more in in dense rainforest looking for these uh, these frogs and and both uh, Albertina and Gianna have an amazing search pattern for these frogs and it took me a while to catch up but they <laughs> eventually got me uh, zoned in on on how to to find them but it, it was a, an amazing experience so as Gianna mentioned, she extracted the DNA and sequenced mitochondrial genes, two mitochondrial genes in Manaus. And then in my laboratory in Sydney, Macquarie University, she generated a large data set of single nucleotide polymorphisms. So she partitioned the data set into a neutral data set and a data set where she suspected that there were SNPs that may have been associated with selection. Uh, so either physically linked to parts of the genome that are under selection or even located within parts of the genome under selection. She then analyzed these two different data sets separately. So the neutral data set she used to characterize genetic variation and ask questions about what environmental features or what phenotypic features were associated with genetic variation. And then she used the data set of SNPs putatively under selection to see if there were any SNPs that were associated with colour type. In other words, could we find any evidence that there has been selection associated with different colour types? And of course, you'd expect that that would be the case. If aposomatic colour is an advertisement, then it should be under strong balancing selection. Oh, perfect. And I'm actually quite jealous of your time in the field. It sounds like it was fantastic. But I guess you kind of teed up some really interesting results there. And I wonder if you could just kind of give us an overview of what you were finding out about the evolution of these color patterns. Sure. So what we, we found was that the color variation arose rapidly, uh, most likely during the Pleistocene, which is largely consistent with patterns that have been observed in, in other poison frogs. You know, that was a, a time period where there was great climatic 
instability. So globally, it, it produced climatic cycles from being very dry to being wet. And so as a consequence, there was major restructuring of, of river systems and forest types in the Amazon basin, which one would expect would change levels of connectivity and perhaps give rise to the right sort of environment for isolation and different colours to arise. And then what we found was that genetic variation was more closely associated with environmental features than with colour type. So in other words, we found that rivers were an effective barrier to dispersal, and that was a, a more important driver of genetic distance than colour type, which supports the idea that the evolution of these colours happen locally. So you've got a situation during the Pleistocene where you've got small sizes, population sizes, and isolation. And, and that's a, a great environment for change to happen because when you've got a small effective population size, it increases random events. So in particular, sampling error at each generation in terms of the gene pool can lead to what's known as random genetic drift where you'll you'll end up getting just random changes in allele frequencies and and we hypothesize that this was actually an important component to the evolution of these different colors in addition to to selection no fantastic and i guess i, I mean the geographic stuff is really interesting but one thing that seems really quite interesting in your study is that you appear to have found some evidence for maybe the same color patterns evolving multiple times independently? Yes. Uh, so when we look at the uh, phylogeny, we can track down the common ancestors uh, of different clades, different genetic groups. And in using ancestral character state analysis, we could show on a few occasions that we did have the same broad color category, whether it's blue, yellow, orange, or brown, arising independently uh, multiple times. And, and that was shown in the phylogenetic analysis, again, both with mitochondrial DNA and with the SNP analysis. It sounds like some really interesting results that you're finding. And you kind of mentioned earlier as well that you were looking at, say, visual systems in some of these potential predators. Uh, well, we model the visual system and we try to see, as Adam explained before, to see if the avian visual system, that is the potential predators, can distinguish between the different colors and also the frogs themselves. And we found that, yeah, that really they can distinguish between populations and between different colors and also between some populations that look like a similar color for us. So really they are different, the colors are different, and we can categorize that, Adam said, in yellow, brown, and blue, and orange as different colors, and that birds can distinguish between them. So that accord with uh, other previous studies in other uh, dendrobatic frogs too. Fantastic. So I wonder what you both think the sort of key message in this study is and how it aids in our understanding of the evolution of apismatism more broadly. Well, what we found is that the Galactonotus, the actual color distribution, is probably corresponds to a different process in the Pleistocene. But they are principally responding to geographic features and not to color variation. And probably this color variation, actual distribution, uh, is um, related to local processes that could be happening in the recent years. Yeah, um, so in addition to what Gianna was saying, 
I think for me, uh, one of the aspects that I found most interesting is that you can't necessarily ignore neutral genetic processes in the evolution of this trait, which clearly has very important fitness consequences. So we're talking about a trait that must be under selection, but nonetheless, uh, you have these neutral genetic processes that are an important component to generating variation in this trait and also the important role of, just kind of related to the point that I was making, of levels of, of connectivity in generating variation in, in this very important functional trait. So for me, I'd say that that's one of the most interesting components of the of the study. And I guess also it, it just it sets the stage for a range of other very interesting questions. So the frogs can distinguish between different dorsal colour variation. And so we've got this remarkably fine-scaled distribution of colour when you've got different colours in, in such close proximity in it. And in some cases, there aren't obvious barriers to gene flow. So there's a series of interesting questions that we would like to follow up on that ask about different behavioural components that might be maintaining the genetic divergence and these different colour types in close proximity. And one of those processes might include assortative mating where blue frogs only mate with blue frogs and, and bright yellow frogs only mate with bright yellow frogs. And uh, given that they can distinguish between the colours, that's a clue that that might in fact be a, a process that's happening to maintain these different coloured populations. And along with that, uh, there might be an interesting series of questions to ask about reproductive character displacement. And so extending on the work that Gianna did, measuring colour, if there is reproductive character displacement, you might predict that the differences between individuals of different coloured populations, the differences in colour would be maximised right at the point of, of contact. So that's another interesting question that would be nice to follow up on. Yeah, based on the picture you've painted, I feel like I would be pretty keen to go back to the field as well. I'm very much looking forward to uh, getting back out into the field and, and generating the data for these papers too. <laughs> well, thank you very much for taking the time to tell us about this research. It sounds really cool. And yeah, hopefully people will go and give this paper a read. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks very much for having me. You know, some of these episodes can be a bit difficult to put together. But for this one, we had to juggle three time zones on three continents, and we had some major technical difficulties with a remote Amazonian internet connection. So a massive thanks to both Jenna and Adam for their patience and their persistence in helping us put this together. I adore this paper, so please do check it out. As a reminder, it's called The Evolution of Polymorphism in the Warning Coloration of the Amazonian Poison Frog Adelphabates Galactinotis, and it's available now on the Heredity website. That's nature.com forward slash hdy. And I know we're running a bit long, but let's quickly check in with Katani over at Genetics Unzipped. It is certainly as true as the gospel that when a man sleeps with his wife or his mistress with dirty and smelly feet, if he fathers a boy, the chill will have smelly and unpleasant breath. And if he fathers a girl, she will have a stinky rear end. There are lots of strange ideas about inheritance out there in the world. That one's from the Distaff Gospels, a collection of medieval old wives' tales. 
Pregnant women were also advised to avoid eating hairs in case they caused their baby to be born with a cleft palate and to skip snacking on fish heads in case their child ended up with a trout pout. Fortunately, our understanding of inheritance has moved on a bit since then. Genetics and genomics are playing ever more important roles in modern healthcare. Genetic tests and increasingly more detailed genomic analysis are providing an unprecedented amount of information about the underlying genetic variations and alterations that affect our health. In this episode of Genetics Unzipped, in partnership with the Genomics Education Programme, we're taking a look at some of the common myths and misconceptions surrounding genomics and genetic tests. Are mutations always bad? If you're more like your mum, does that mean you've inherited more of her genes? And is there such a thing as a perfect genome? Genetics Unzipped is brought to you by the Genetics Society. Listen and download now from geneticsunzipped.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do go and give it a listen. But for us, that's it. You can subscribe to the podcast on all good podcast platforms. And you can follow us on Twitter at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm James Bergen. Thanks for listening.